Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the very first episode of our podcast, Near and Queer to My Heart. I'm your host, Amanda G. I'm going to be guiding you through this beautiful queer journey. I host in New Orleans a monthly storytelling show called Greetings from Queer Mountain. And every show we have different storytellers tell us a little story, usually about eight to ten minutes. And it's always amazing and beautiful. And sometimes they make me laugh or cry or both. It's just, it's a magical time. But I always feel like it's not enough. You know, eight to 10 minutes isn't enough to really get to know someone. So we created this podcast to give you guys an opportunity to really get to know some amazing queer folks that are out there. And after each interview that I do, at the end, we'll play either a story or if they're a stand-up, a stand-up clip so that you can, you know, hear that and have that experience here. So let's get to it. Here's our first episode. Genevieve Reams, good friend of mine co-hosted the show she's been on our show various times she's a storyteller she's a writer she's won the moth here she's amazing her life's amazing let's get to it Genevieve's been nice to host me at her house, uh, which has included vodka tonics, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> um, I know the snacks that you like. Yes. <laughs> I told her vodka is never just a snack. We all know this. So cheers, Genevieve. Cheers to the broadcast of the podcast. Yes. So you're from the New Orleans area. You're from Luling? Uh, well, I'm from New Orleans. We moved to Luling when I was about 10. I grew up, I lived all around the New Orleans area when I was growing up. You're 10 years old. Do you remember living in, in New Orleans proper prior Absolutely. to that? Yeah. How was it, like, how was it moving to Luling? Was that... It was awful. It was horrible. When we moved out there in 1986, you can do the math of how old I am, it was a neighborhood along the side of a highway across the street from the Monsanto plant. And it is about as glamorous as it sounds. And uh, it was a really homophobic community and not very diverse. And there was a lot of backwards thinking out there. So I I, I felt really out of place immediately. You went through high school there? No, I, uh, I went through junior high there. Okay. And then begged my parents to send me anywhere else. <laughs> and so they <laughs> sent me to Dominican, a Catholic all-girls high school. Little awkward, but better in that I was in the New Orleans area, and uh, and I I had to I was forced to like wear a skirt so nobody could make fun of the way I dressed. People make fun of the way that you dress. Oh yeah, all the time. I was a I was a big tomboy. If you grew up in St. Charles Parish in the late '80s and you did not have big hair and lots of makeup, you might as well have been a dyke. Like you, I mean you. Like, it was a sign. Like, it doesn't matter if you were, like, heterosexual and you had, like, straight, flat hair and you didn't wear makeup. I mean, people thought that you ate pussy anyway. <laughs> I think my mom's the one who made fun of me the most for the way I dress. I was also a tomboy, <laughs> and I used to always want to shop in the, the boys' section or the men's section. I just felt like they had cooler clothes. I they felt, did. I wanted the, the jackets when they, they opened their jacket, and there's, I don't know what it's, there's probably a proper name, but like an inside pocket. Yeah, pockets like everywhere. Open it up, like all the cool superhero guys and like yep. James Bond and shit. They always had like this inside pocket, which had some cool shit in it. I wanted that. I even, I even asked my grandma to sew me one, and she said, no, that's for boys. No. Um, now I have multiple jackets with inside pockets, <laughs> and they're amazing. Yes, and 
The boys had all the pockets, so you could carry all of the yeah, things. Just in and general. it's like in general, boys' clothes are made for like climbing trees and jumping over ditches and all of that fun stuff that I like to do. I didn't just like to like sit around and look pretty or whatever. I liked to, I was I was an action child. Yeah, it was really hard climbing fences and skirts. So yeah. Uh, for sure. I mean, you can do it, and I and if I did see a woman climbing a fence in a skirt, that would be really hot. But it's not very <laughs> user friendly. No, not at all. Was Dominican homophobic? Did you were you aware of that at that time? I wasn't aware of me at that time. I mean, I I felt like attraction to a lot of other students, but I immediately shoved it down. I mean, Dominican was Catholic, so like there was just a lot of like we had like. Like, we had two lesbian teachers who were together, but just nobody really talked about it. It wasn't, it was, it was like you could be who you were to an extent, but you just couldn't talk about it. The focus was definitely on grades and that kind of thing. So that, that was a really good, it was actually, Dominican was a great place for me for that. Because I, I try to think back, like, when I'm just looking at that, I always try to think back about when I became aware that I could even, that lesbians even existed, mm-hmm. that was an option for me. Because um, I definitely uh, had a lot of moments where I, I'd be attracted to a girl, but I just thought, oh, she's so cool and confident, I just want to be near her because I want to be her. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't realize, you know, even in, on TV back then, there sometimes they had, like, a sassy gay best friend, <laughs> but there was never, like, a, a lesbian, and I didn't really... I, I didn't realize for a very long time, and I can't even pinpoint when it was, that I realized, hey, a woman can actually you know, be in a relationship with a woman and be attracted to another woman. And so I always try to think about you know, when that was for me, and when I realized like, not only did this exist, but hey, maybe that's for me. Yeah, for, I remember on TV, the lesbian characters were a joke. A gay or a lesbian character was always a joke. Um, and there were no bisexual at all. Like, yeah. I don't remember there ever being a bisexual character. Yeah, that was um, never talked about. And I also remember, I mean, my favorite aunt growing up has been gay, like, all her life. And so I, I saw her relationships, but I saw how much she struggled, and I saw how fleeting those relationships were. So it, I mean, she, she did have one girlfriend that she was with off and on for about 12 years who... I got really close to, but and became like a, a really big inspiration to me. But uh, it still looked like something that was very scary, and I was able to accept everyone around me who might be gay, except for myself. Yeah, and it's a, it's a lot easier to do that. I also, when I was in high school, and I remember, th- I remember even thinking one time I was at Disneyland, and everyone's you know taking pictures, and they're, and I remember thinking I don't, even, I want to be in any pictures. I don't even want to be in the background of anyone's pictures. Mm-hmm. Like I just want to get by, and I want to get through, and I don't want to be different. And I don't want to stand yeah. out in any way, shape, or form. And yeah. I think part of that was, like, I always knew I was different, and so I tried to fight it yeah. in other ways. When Stacy talked last night, last night um, when she was on Core Mountain, and she was telling the story about how she just wanted to be status quo, she just wanted to be just like everybody else, I completely identified with that. Um, that was why when I went to Dominican High School and they stuck us in uniforms, I was relieved because... I didn't have to, I wasn't going to be made fun of for my clothes. I was going to look like everybody else. And it was impossible for me not to stand out because I was so damn tall. But I could blend as well as I could. There. Yeah. How, how tall are you? I'm six feet. Okay. I'm 5'2", so everyone's just really tall pretty much. <laughs> um, I know you seem taller than, than other folks. When, when did you become six feet? At 12. Okay. So I... I was always tall, like as a baby, like, like, I'm not <laughs> kidding. Like, I was, I was tall, like at birth, I think I was average height. And then I just grew and grew and grew. And, um, my mother said at 18 months old, like she looked at this, she was looking through this parenting magazine and it, it showed the average of children's height, like at my age. And I was 18 months old and she said I wasn't on it. And so I felt, I think growing up, I felt different in every single way that a person could feel different. I was also I also didn't understand that in order for people to not make fun of you, you have to pretend that it doesn't bother you. Um. And I really let people know. <laughs> like, I would just cry. Oh. And, like, I, I, I was really bad at faking it. And I'm still bad at faking it. Like, if I'm upset about something, I can tell really easily. Yeah, no, and that's, you know, as an adult, that's such a good quality. But, you know, as a, as a, yeah. as a kid, you know, that sometimes people see that and they say, oh, yeah, we're actually getting through to her. We're going to keep on. Yeah. Authenticity things. is not a virtue as a child. Like, you're not. 
Vulnerability? No. No. Not <laughs> yeah, no, my junior high had, we only had junior high for two years in California, and we had uniforms, and that was the whole point of it. Well, the whole point of it, they said, was to avoid gangs, because oh. obviously we would all join gangs if we could just pick our own clothes out. <laughs> But it was that so, was that your deterrent? That's why yeah. you didn't end up in the life of crime no, that I, we know of. And I went to college. Thank you, La Mesa Junior High. <laughs> um, but I remember a lot of the girls wanted to go out of their way to make their uniforms different. Like they wear sometimes like a sticker, or um, you know, they they try to tuck it or untuck it or, or do something a little a little different. And I would I didn't do anything. I didn't try to hem it. I didn't try to add even in my hair. I didn't try to do anything different because I just yeah. wanted to skate through. And the more I look back at it, I think it's. You know, I was different. That's when everyone kind of started dating or liking boys or, you know, going down that route. And I didn't have that to talk about with my friends. So I yeah. became a really good listener. Yeah. Yeah. I did the same thing. <laughs> I felt that because you're a good listener now. So. <laughs> and the other confusing element, I think, was that I always knew from a very young age that I wanted to have children. And I knew that I wanted to have them naturally. And when I was a kid... I didn't know any gay people with children. I know now that they existed because now I know people, adults who were raised by gay parents, but I didn't know anyone. And I thought I had to be with a man if I wanted children. Yeah, well, that's what they teach you in school. And I'm sure, you know, there's a Catholic component to it. Yeah. Um, that also, you know, religion definitely plays a role in that. It did. In fact, when I was a kid, um, we had this under the tree every year, um, uh, the nativity, we had a nativity set and it was like a, a, a little miniature stable with Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and baby Jesus. And I remember I would steal baby Jesus and pretend like he was my baby because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be a mom. And anyway, I, I don't remember where I was going with that story. I just kind of think it's funny now. That Did you also hope that like Virgin Mary could also be Virgin Genevieve. Maybe <laughs> so. Blessed with a, with a child. <laughs> yeah, it happened. I mean, she did it. Yeah. It happened once. It's been a couple thousand years, you know? There are other ways to be mom. There are. I mean, she had, like, the savior. I mean, got, like, an overachiever, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She, if you're going to have a baby that way, like, better be Jesus, too. <laughs> For sure. So you finished high school, mm-hmm. um, went to college right away, took some time off. Went to college. I, I really had, I, and then I did take some time off. It actually took me 13 years to finish my undergrad. I went for a couple of years, uh, met the man who would become my husband. He was actually my first relationship ever. Um, something that also I feel sometimes separate from the gay community in this way is that I am terrified of physical intimacy (laughs) a lot, uh, especially when I was younger. Um, I didn't trust a whole lot of people and uh, I was terrified of women. I I knew that like I I dated men kind of, but I really didn't want to do anything with them and I couldn't, you know, I, I was terrified of the possibility that I might be gay. But when I met my ex-husband Chris, I trusted him and he was my friend and so we got together and we got married and I had three children right away. Um, and I'm really glad that I did. But it's funny. He said on our second date, I told him I thought I might be gay. <laughs> and neither of us like picked up on that as a possible red flag. No, you guys were like, <laughs> let's just keep this train, train moving. Yeah. And then, but I had, so I had my youngest child, my son, and then I, I really wanted to go back and get my degree. When he got into preschool, I, I finished my degree then. Congratulations, you're in grad school now. I'm in grad school now. Yeah, I love it. So, <laughs> you were married, had kids, doing the family thing. What happened? What What was the point of Well, Amanda, let me take another sip of my vodka comment. That's the time oh, to take oh. a sip. <clears throat> this is the break now where you guys can all take sips of whatever beverage that you have. Um, yes, I hope you're all enjoying beverages <laughs> of all kinds. Whatever you, I'm a vodka girl. But I won't judge if you're a whiskey girl or a boy. Yeah, or you're drinking herbal tea or what have you. Tequila or whatever. Yeah, we're an accepting community. Yes. And on all levels. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Just share. (laughs) So we were moving right along. You know, I had three kids and I really enjoyed being a mom and all that stuff. And I mean, to to give you the short version, I just got gayer. Like, I, I really think that... When I was younger, I think I was more bisexual, which is weird, but like I really, like, I did have crushes on boys and girls, 
when it came to actually physically do anything with them, I, I got turned off right away. Like I, I hated kissing guys. And I guess it was about five years into my marriage that I noticed that I was noticing women more. Um, and I don't know if it was just that, you know, it could also be that I was becoming a lot more comfortable with myself and kind of getting to know who I was because as I think I said in the uh, story that you're going to play, I, I really was a blank slate. Like I really didn't know who I was. I was a very codependent person. I was kind of whoever anybody needed me to be. And other than knowing what I liked in my taste in music and movies, I really didn't know a lot about myself. And so I noticed I was becoming more physically attracted to women which I, I, you know, but I was still, I still wanted to be married to my husband. And, but as things got a little complicated in our marriage, I, I, I made sure, and he was gone a lot with work and stuff. And I, I tried to make sure that I did not get too close to my male friends because I knew that something was wrong. I didn't know if it was something in our relationship or something that was wrong with me, but I knew that something was wrong. And I thought like, I, I have to stay focused on my husband and my kids and, which I don't think is a bad thing when you're a married person, you know, yeah. but um, what I did not watch out for was getting too close to a female friend. And I had female friends. I did. I just wasn't attracted to any of them. <laughs> and then I met a woman in a, um, in a writing group and, and fell in love with her and really had to take a, a very, a very long, hard look at who I was and what was happening. And I, I had like a total breakdown. Like I, I, I mean, my kids at the time were, um, I think they were eight, six and four. And I remember thinking, and I was so in 2000, I was 32, 31, 32. And I remember thinking, I'm too, I'm too old to not know who I am. I'm too old to like, I, you know, things are supposed to coast by now. I have a house, I have kids, I have, you know, I, I just finished my degree. Like I, I'm not supposed to have a, a life crisis that changes everything and hurts my children and hurts my husband. And anyway, I had to, um, she was, she did love me too. And we talked about it and I couldn't see her. Like I, it was that bad. Like I, I couldn't, I could not see her. I, I had to recommit. I decided I would recommit to my husband for, a, and I did for another year. And in that year, I know that I, like, I, I really, you know, we went to marriage therapy and all this kind of stuff. And I was just, I remember the day that I came out to myself and, um, it was actually in a church <laughs> and I had to get up and leave the church and go outside. And I, it was like my laugh, my, it was like a, a death of my straight life and that I, my life kind of flashed before my eyes and everything made sense. All these little things that had happened to me in the course of my life, it all hit me in this sequence of memory flashes that they say happens to you right before you die. And it was, it really was the death of that life. And I didn't know that you could be reborn while you're still alive. I mean, that all sounds intense. Like, even the attraction sounds like it was this really intense attraction. It was incredibly intense attraction. And then you had this intense religious experience, essentially. Essentially, on, you yeah. Know, on some levels. Um, where, you know, you, you saw this clarity in this moment. And even then, I knew, you know, I knew that I was not going to leave my husband right then, but I knew that I would not, that I had uncovered some kind of truth that I could not deny anymore. And it was about six months later that I told him that I, I, I was really just gay and I, I needed to, we needed to get a divorce. And it, it wasn't, because it, it was also not fair to him, um, I felt. I, mean, I don't think he, like, I don't at the time think he felt like I was doing any favors, but, uh, and then there was a whole roller coaster afterwards of my kids adjusting and it's just been, um, uh, actually I just finished writing a book about that actually. Oh, amazing. Is it going to be on Amazon? Uh, it should. I, right now I don't even know, like I, I'm, I'm having a, a couple of people read it over for me, a couple of writers that I, I really trust and respect and, um, just to get their opinion and because I feel like there's. An element in the ending that's missing. I have a hard time writing endings sometimes. Uh, but it it's it's the emotional truth of pretty much everything I just told you. <laughs> yeah, no, and, I, and I think it's interesting, too, because you have the extra layer of you had kids. So you're their mom. You're, you're coming out to your kids. And yeah. you have to explain. Like, I came out at, at 23, and I had to tell my parents, which was difficult enough. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't even know. I don't. I can't even think of how I would, you know, do that. But what I, what I love about you and the stories that you tell, like greetings from Clear Mountain and at the Moth, and just you know the stories, you know, your blog posts, everything, is that you're you're honest. And throughout this whole thing, you you're willing to take yourself to that extra place to like figure out. Because a lot of other people, and I know I used to describe it before I came out of like I felt like I was like sentence on a typewriter where you like yeah. type the sentence out and then you just push the the typewriter, you know, and go yeah. to the next line. And then I would forget about that first line. Oh, that's a weird thought. And I just put it away and compartmentalize it and not really delve into it. And there's a lot of that that I had to go back and, and really process. And I feel yeah. like you were like, hey, I need to process this. I need to work through it. And then you were able to yeah. do that. What I really wanted to write about was the family comes out with you. And I, I don't know if really, like, I don't think that my, my parents are my, I don't know how much my sisters talk about this with me, but like, I know that my children feel now that they live in a queer family and it's like we all kind of come out together. So it wasn't something that I, it, it, the thing that happened that I wasn't expecting was how when I came out, everyone around me kind of came out with me or they decided not to and just didn't talk to me about it and didn't tell anybody else about it. Like, let's say you come out to your really close sister or something, or aunt, and um, they're kind of like, eh, okay, whatever makes you happy. But then they never, like, acknowledge that that, that exists for you. And it's almost yeah. like they did not come out. And they're, even yeah. though they're not coming, it's like it's like a uh, secondary coming out for them. No, and they call your girlfriend your roommate or exactly. your, your little friend or, yeah. you know, whatever that is. So. Yeah, so coming out really is, like, people either step forward with you or they don't. And that was, I think, the hardest part of it is the people that didn't step forward with me. But as far as my kids go, I remember thinking one of the deciding factors when I came out, because I I wondered, like, is coming out selfish? This changes their whole lives. Even if I'm not with someone, you know, this means they're not going to ever have a stepdad or or whatever. Anyway, and then I, I realized, like, you know, me not knowing who I was and hiding who I was for the longest time did not do me any favors and made my life really complicated and... I felt like one of the lessons that I needed to teach them by example was to embrace fully who they were. And I can't teach that if I don't do that. And, and my kids pretty are, are pretty genuine and honest about who they are right now. They're 14, 14, 16, and 18. And you brought your daughter to one of the Greens from Clear Mountain. Shows. Yeah, now that she's old enough. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was interesting. You know, I was, I was happy she went. It seemed like she, she got something out of that. Yeah. Um, but I, I always feel like... In, I feel like this is a different context, but a lot of people say, you know, like you're saying, it was selfish to come out. Mm. But I feel like a lot of times, and I find this especially with uh, women in my life, that they'll sacrifice themselves thinking that there's, like, okay, I won't do this because I might be being selfish and saying this is what I want for me. But in the end, because everyone can see that they're hurting or they're missing, you know, something, Mm -hmm. that it actually does affect everyone in the other way. And the less selfish option would be to take that step versus to not take it. And think, think you're sacrificing yeah. yourself. Well, there was this, uh, at the time, right before I came out, and at the time that I fell in love with my friend, there was this website or support group online called Ask Joanne. And it was for women who, married women who awoke to their sexuality and their girlfriends, <laughs> which was, you can imagine, a shit show. Because <laughs> all the girlfriends and the, and the wives were, like, posting stuff on the same yeah. site. <laughs> and, um, but it was really helpful to read, but I read over and over and over again, these women who were just terrified to come out, just terrified. And a lot of them decided that they would keep having an affair and not say anything until all of their children were of age. Um, because they, they couldn't, they were afraid to leave financially, you know, they weren't financially independent. And by the way, neither was I. (laughs) I have spent the last like seven years of my, after my divorce, trying to build my career. And, um, oh, I was terrified. I was really terrified. I I had only like worked, I'd been a stay at home mom for the most part and I'd gotten my degree, but it was right. It was like an English creative writing. (laughs) It, It was, there was a lot to it. It was, really complicated and sometimes reading those posts I would feel very empowered and sometimes reading them I would feel scared to death and feel like well maybe maybe I should wait until my youngest is 18 but I knew that if I did that I would probably indirectly kill myself I was so like miserable and knowing that I was living a life that was not 
meant for me that I would probably do something that would indirectly kill me. I mean, I, I always feel like like being gay is just is an extra layer on top of everything else in life. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to decide who to come out to, when to come out. My girlfriend and I just took a trip. Um, we drove uh, from New Orleans to Des Moines, Iowa. We stopped in Missouri. We stopped in Tennessee. We stopped in Mississippi. And we have to always be conscious of, of, of our surroundings. And, you know, also just being a child of um, my parents who, yeah, who yeah. got divorced when I was 19 and stayed, tried to stay together through me and my younger brother making it through high school that the kids can feel that, you know? Oh, yeah. Your kids came out with you and that's... So though, taking that step is sometimes, it's the hardest thing to do, and it's mm-hmm. scary, and yeah, there's concerns. Like my first girlfriend, we broke up, we were living together, and I didn't think about where I was going to go. <laughs> I, I had no plan. I slept on an air mattress in my friend's house uh, for a very long time, because I just was like, I have to break up with her, and then I didn't have a game plan, and I was working, I had a job, but I didn't make that much money, I didn't have a deposit, I didn't have, yeah. I didn't know the city that well at the time, I didn't know what what part of town I wanted to live in. I just, you know, didn't think that part through. So what you're saying, I can relate to a lot of the, the different pieces of that. Yeah, I, like, I think like what um, one of the storytellers said last night about you grow up with this idea of what your life is going to be like. And it never includes those kinds of complications. It never includes like, oh, totally, I'm going to grow up and, um, and be a fringe, living mm-hmm. <laughs> on the fringe of society. <laughs> and go to a lot of parties with glow sticks mm-hmm. and dental dams on the table. Whatever. Uh-huh. Like it's just it's weird. Like I I never ex-girlfriends galore. Yeah, ex girlfriends all over the place and just sometimes I feel out of place in the gay community itself because sometimes it feels like it's like this hyper sexual community. And um everything is every, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes it feels like like the um the sex part of it and the promiscuity part of it is like seriously hyped up and I've never felt comfortable with that. I think it's changing now a little bit, but I felt like when I was growing up, they made gay seem like to be in a gay relationship. They weren't the, the idea was that they weren't stable. Everyone was really promiscuous. Everybody cheated on each other. Nobody was really faithful. And the promise of having a straight life when you grew up was that you'd have one person in a committed relationship and even that is not necessarily true yeah I was gonna and, say <laughs> but but you know what I mean like it, yeah. it's we're, we're just now the community I feel is getting some kind of acknowledgement and respect that we can just be people who like get together for coffee and maybe not hook up and like have it be like this wild thing where you end up going to a function and you've slept with 48 people out of 47 yeah, and I, I, I used to, and I definitely, you know, I've had those thoughts. Um, I, I, you know, myself, I know, like, when I meet someone for the first time, I tell them three things about myself. And I tell, I say on the first date, these three things. I say, I, I don't want kids. Mm, you yeah. want kids, we're not going to make it, because that's non-negotiable. Um, I say, I have cats. <laughs> we're a package deal. Everyone, <laughs> everyone knows this. They were there first. I will pick them over you 100%. Uh, and then the last thing I, I say <laughs> is true. <laughs> I feel like I've also had to Honestly, do that. Honestly, <laughs> important in a relationship. Yeah, because you're not going to find out six months down the line that, you know, if my cat peed on something, I'm not going to be mad at him. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, maybe don't yeah. put your clothes on the floor. <laughs> and you might not <laughs> like that. <laughs> and the third thing that I'll say is I'm, I'm a monogamous person. Yeah. So if you're looking to date, I get it when we first start dating. I'm not saying, like, we need to commit day one. I'm just saying that down the road if things work out and we get along, that is something, you know, that I'm looking for. So yeah. the fact that I feel the need to say that <laughs> says something. I also kind of always had this theory because I think a lot about the coming out process and I think a lot about the queer community and what that means, you know, for New Orleans. One of the things about Greetings from Queer Mountain that people like is that, you know, yeah, we have a bar there and you can drink, but it's, it's a queer event that's not focused on, on drinking and, and getting fucked up and hooking up. Yeah. Yeah, I like that about it, too. I definitely, you know, think a lot about that, but I also think a lot of people spent so much time in the closet mm. that when we come out, we just want to fucking come out. We want to, I want a fucking parade. <laughs> I, want, I, I deserve a parade, yeah. and I want that, and I, and I feel like that that's part of it, is that you, instead of, like, just having that as part of your life from day one, you've either had to fight it or hide it or deny yeah. it or repress it or whatever or all those things that when you are finally ready to take that step and you want you 
do come out that you're a hundred percent, two hundred percent out. Yeah. And so I think that I also, you know, that's my. I have a theory about everything, Genevieve. So I do too. Um, oh, and I also want to say, just for you yeah. listeners out there, that I I have a lot of friends who are not monogamous. Like they're polyamorous and they're happy and they're they're like very like comfortable in their sexuality and I I, I admire that a lot. It just like that doesn't like I don't feel comfortable with it but like as a per like me just myself but um so that was why sometimes I just wondered if I belonged in the gay community because so many people seem comfortable so comfortable with themselves and I don't feel maybe I should rephrase all that and just say I have not always felt comfortable with myself like my own repression and my own like shit about that Sometimes I feel like, well, maybe I just don't belong because I'm I'm not like comfortable in the way that everybody else seems to be really comfortable. And I I know that that is not true, but it's just sometimes. Yeah, I know, and I and I respect everybody. One thing too, I feel like with a lot of folks in the gay communities, we you know we are like I'm now confident enough where when I meet you for the first time, I can I can tell you like here are three things that are non negotiable, <laughs> and you know other people have come to me and said, yeah, you know, I'm Polly, and, and to, to just know yeah. that and, and be comfortable with who you are, it takes a long time to get there, and so when you do, I think, it it's, does. I think it's really great. Yeah. Um, everyone should just do them to the best of their ability, and I and I definitely respect that. Yeah, I, I will, I, this year, I marched in the Pride Parade, and I decided I will always march. Always. Have you ever, have you marched? Oh, it? yeah. Like, everyone is so excited mm-hmm. that you're gay. Yeah. Everyone, they're so, they're like, yeah! Mm-hmm. I'm like, Yes, I am. And and like they high five you. Yeah. Like I've accomplished something just by being queer. That's and what it's I'm saying. Marvelous. It's fantastic. The parades are great and we yeah. deserve a fucking parade. Really do. Yeah, no, the last parade I uh, my friend and I got a bottle of wine and put it in an algene like a water bottle and halfway through we started bought another bottle of wine. Um, and we didn't make it to the end of the parade. That's right, that's right. That's why I didn't meet up with you that day. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got lost and my friend lost his phone. It was a whole thing, but I had a good time. It was a great time. <laughs> yeah, and I would definitely march in the future for sure. Yeah. I, um, when did you get, I'm going to change pace a little bit, um, because when, you know, I met you through softball, and I also mm-hmm. met you through, you know, some storytelling communities. When did you first start getting on stage and telling stories? Or did you do any other types of performance, or was storytelling uh, your main outlet? No, I didn't do any other types of performing. Um, I mean, I've written since I was little, and I've been, you know, I've, I've gotten published and everything, but I, so I've always done writing. I, so I had a job for five years that made me really miserable and it was very like mind numbing and I could do what I needed to do without, like I could have headphones on and listen to stuff all day long and still do my work. And so I, um, at first I was listening to a lot of music and then I started listening. I don't know how I stumbled onto this, but I started listening to moth storytelling and I listened to it, I got obsessed. Like, I listened to it compulsively. I, I, and I, I got, like, favorite storytellers that I would find. And, um, like, uh, Aaron uh, Barker. And then I found out that we had a moth here in New Orleans and uh, at Cafe Istanbul. And I started going there. And one night, they, they didn't have enough storytellers. Because they, they need ten. And they only had five. So during the break, uh, C.J. Hunt. He was the host then. Yeah. And great, great he guy. was amazing. So hilarious and a really good storyteller. And during the break, he said, come on, we, we this never happens. Like, we need more people to volunteer. Yeah, they usually have so many people. They, they do. Bucket, like a bucket it's full of It's overflowing. Names. It's usually overflowing. And so my friends said, go out there, go out there, put your name in. And I don't remember what the theme was, but I told... I put my name in, and I ended up telling you a story. You got picked. What a I surprise. Did. I, <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> but I, I told a story about trying to balance my parenting by, and playing women's tackle football at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and softball. I was playing softball, football, and I was a pretty much full-time single mom and working full-time. And so I talked about balancing all of that. And I loved it, and it felt natural being up there. And I didn't have anything prepared. I just told a story like I'm talking to you right now. I just thought of it as how I would tell a story to a friend. 
It worked out good. Yeah. And, and then after that, I went to every single moth after that and kept telling more stories until I eventually won one. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> Which was a story about uh, something that happened at that job that I hated. So there you go. Everything serves a purpose. See, exactly. Everything leads you to the person that you are today. <laughs> You're a writer. You know, you've, like you said, you've written your whole life. And I know it's really hard for people who are writers to make that transition to, to being on stage. It's just you and a yes. microphone and some personal nugget from your life that you're sharing to a few people you know, but mostly strangers. Mm-hmm. And the moth is, they, you know, they put it on the radio, and I think sometimes they feel, you know, like... Yeah, I don't know how they pick it, they pick, but really, I did not expect it to be such a different medium, but it really is. I've tried um, writing stories down before I go up and tell them, and it doesn't work. Because when I'm up there, it, it becomes its own animal. Like, it... Because you're you're interacting with an audience, as you know, because yeah. you're up there. And, you know, I can have a whole thing planned. And then when it comes out, like the audience, sometimes they laugh at parts that I didn't intend to be funny. Oh, that, that drives me crazy. And I, <laughs> I know, me because too. Because I'm like, no, no, wait, that's not the punchline. And then you have to pause. But and I'm <laughs> also like, well, I guess I did something right. <laughs> they're into it. And then it fucks up the timing. Yeah. Because a second later, something was supposed to be funny. And then that's and, no longer funny. And it's no longer funny. Yeah, because the moment has passed. Like, that tension, that buildup is, like, discharged. And it's like, it's... Did I just use the word discharge? Yeah. Anyway, it, it's... anticipated, but that's now... Better. Yeah, I was like, discharge. I just... I homeschooled my son, and we just learned about static electricity. Okay. All right. This discharge can mean a lot of things. It can. And this is not that type of podcast. So, it... It, I had to learn the art of storytelling, and I love it. It's so different from the other writing that I do. It's um, I did I've told stories on stage that I've also written, like as an essay, and I have to change it when I'm up there. Yeah, no, I love um, you know you, you've done our show Greetings from Queer Mountain probably like five times. You posted it, you co-hosted it with me, and I noticed you've gotten more confident and you've gone you know more off the cuff and more. You know, you can go down this little path over here and then get right back on the main road and, you know, make it to the end oh, of your story. Yeah. And, I, and I like seeing you, you know, let loose like that. And I see it more and more and I see your confidence building so much. And it's just like a beautiful thing to see that process come out. Thank you, dear. People who want to tell stories or storytellers who are just starting out too. Because I, I, I guess that was two years ago that I first told my first story. So it's been about two years and it is awkward. Like, I guess you probably experienced this in, in stand-up. It's awkward at first, that learning curve of getting up there and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't, because you do it in front of a group of people. But it's so important, I think, just to push through that and see what works and see what does it and bomb sometimes. Oh, yeah. No, that's the, the, the hardest thing with the process. And stand-up, I think, is similar to storytelling in that the only way you're going to get better is you just have Practice. to keep going up there yeah. and you have to keep doing it. It's not practicing in the mirror or in front no. of your cat or whatever, because your cat's going to love everything you do. It's, <laughs> it's getting out in front of an audience that may or may not like everything you do. They may not yeah. want to hear about your first gay relationship. They may want to hear about it. You don't know until you're up there. They may think your your joke's too perverted. They may mm-hmm. think that you should have been more perverted. You might be bisexual right now, and they don't like the fact that you are in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's always interesting to see that process and to tell people, like, how, do, how do you do it? So you keep doing it. Yeah. You've got to keep doing it, even if you had a bad night. And it is really hard <laughs> to bomb. But I'll tell you, I've, I've done the same material now. I've been doing comedy three and a half years. And I have some jokes that I told my first set that I would say, like, 95% of the time, they get a laugh. But there's that 5% of the time that everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. So yeah. And, just, and you do that, that. That um, saying of you hear crickets, that's true. I've heard the crickets. <laughs> that is not a lie. Right? Yeah, I know. And I don't like them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not a fan of the crickets. No. And I t- talking in front of the mirror, like as a rehearsal, I can't do it. I start laughing. <laughs> I, I can't. Like, I, I can, like, drive in my car. This is what I do. This is how I rehearse. I'll drive in the car or walk around my house. I have to be in motion. Even if I'm in another machine that's putting the emotion, yeah. I have to move and I have to say things over and over and over, like what I'm going to say. I usually write down my first line 
in my last line so that I, I have like a, a beginning and end point and that the middle just meanders and it changes. Yeah, that's what I've, uh, people have told me with storytelling, that the main goal, you know, or the, the best thing that you can do is at least maybe not always the beginning, but to have that ending. You need to know where it's going to end mm-hmm. up. Yeah. You know, for me, I don't, I sometimes pace around, but what I like to do is be really gay and throw a softball up and down <laughs> um, to help me with my timing. <laughs> I just, you know, make, make sure that that's there in that, in that piece. But sometimes I'll drive around just to clear my head or yeah. oftentimes, like, because what they say is when you're doing something that's mindless, you know, I guess like your old job um, mm-hmm. or driving or somebody's taking a shower, just doing the dishes, like your brain, that part of your brain's occupied and it frees up the other part of your brain to really, you know, let loose and get those good ideas. Yeah. Well, thank you for speaking with us and being on our very first podcast. Thank you. Um, this is Genevieve Reams, and we're now going to be playing a story that she did last year um, at Greetings from Queer Mountain. And it's a good one, so you're going to want to stick around for it. Thank you all. So, for a brief time, I was an art model. And uh, my friend Ricardo asked me to do this. When he asked me, at the time that he asked me, I was wearing an Ozzy Osbourne suicide solution t-shirt and really baggy blue jeans and um, I wasn't sure why he thought I'd be good at that since I had no physical curves at all. I was just a big baggy rectangle and um, (laughs) but he was my friend so he did know that I was open to suggestion. So um, I asked him like why do you think I would be good at this? And he said, well, I don't know. I, I think you have nice features. Now, he wasn't asking me for him. He was asking me for his friend Dale. Um, Ricardo was a fine arts major at UNO. We both went to UNO. And um, his friend Dale was a really good photographer who was trying to get his work out there. And uh, every person he showed his work to, they'd ask him where the news were in his portfolio. And Dale was really shy. He was a nice guy, but he was really shy. So he had asked Ricardo to ask me, which is kind of like getting asked to the prom, like through a friend, only they're asking you to go naked. And so I said, uh, do I have to be totally naked? And he said, well, yeah, but I mean, it's not like, it's not like porn or anything. I mean, it's art. Like, it's tasteful. And I didn't know what that meant. So... <laughs> Like, the other thing, too, was when he said that he thought that I might be good at this, it was a really foreign concept to me. Like, it, it definitely wasn't something that went to my head. It was just kind of confusing, because um, I'm not a photogenic person. Like, when I smile at pictures, my face kind of squishes up, my eyes get really small, my nose gets bigger. I don't understand when that happens. And um, I just feel like I don't really look like myself. And also, I'm, I'm, I'm really tall, so, like, and most of the people I know are about this tall, or maybe shorter. So I just look like this enormous Yeti standing next to normal-sized people. And especially if like, I'm hugging someone in a picture, it looks like I'm crushing her to death. <laughs> so and the other reason why this was kind of confusing to me is because I was 20 years old at the time. I was a really shy virgin. No one had seen me naked like since junior high when I was changing in gym, and I used to get made fun of them. And um, I just didn't, like, it was just some, it was just kind of a foreign concept to me. So um, I was also like a blank slate of a person at 20. Like, I didn't know myself. I didn't know what I wanted. I, I thought I might be gay, but I thought I might be got, but, like, bi, I wasn't sure. And um, so to find out things about myself, I generally just tried everything, especially things that might seem like a bad idea. So... I did, and I, I think that's why I decided to do it. And I liked Dale, the photographer. I liked him right away. He was a really nice guy. He was really tall and stocky, about 10 years older than me. And um, he was really nervous about it, too. So uh, at first he said, well, let's just take some pictures with your clothes on. So I remember I was like reading a book on the couch, and he was just taking pictures of me. And he said, relax your face. And I wasn't aware that my face was tense. So. I said, well, how do I do that? Because I wasn't smiling or anything. And um, he said, I don't know, maybe just like take a deep breath. And I took a deep breath, and I felt like all my tension washed away. And uh, it came back when I took my shirt off, that tension. 
And I was just like standing there in my bra, and I looked over at Dale, and he really wasn't like acting any differently. Like he was, um, he was just kind of like setting things up, like lighting and setting and everything. And I think it was like his professional attitude that made me really kind of relax, and I was able to get fully undressed. And the first few pictures he took of me while I was undressed, I remember we're in his kitchen, and I was just like sitting on a chair reading a book, you know, just like a naked lady just hanging out. And um, he said, relax your face. And, uh, and so I, I took a deep breath, and, um, and I, I said, like, am I, am I doing this right? Like, am I doing this wrong? And because I just suddenly got, like, really insecure. And he said, no, you're, you're actually kind of good at this. And I said, I am? And he said, yeah, I hardly have to tell you to do anything. Like, you just kind of fall into these poses that are really natural. And, um... Let me tell you, it's really weird to be told that you're good at being naked. <laughs> like, it's, it, you would think that it's really flattering, but it's just kind of confusing. Because I just think of nudity as kind of a passive state. You know, it's not the same as like being good at soccer or cooking. It's more of just like... <sighs> there you go. Um, but anyway, so uh, when he showed me the pictures... Afterwards, after that first shoot, I was really shocked because it wasn't until then that I realized that I had this really distorted view of myself. Like, um, I kind of thought, I mean, he was right. Like, I actually was kind of good at this. Like, uh, the woman in that picture, in those pictures, who was me, had, like, these long limbs that were graceful. They weren't, like, a yeti, like I thought that they were. And... Um, I mean, you could see, I, like, I had definite flaws. Like, I think that's kind of the great thing about art photography is that you could see, like, all of my stretch marks and my roll of fat when I sat down. Like, all that stuff was there. But to understand what it meant to me that I looked human, you kind of have to know that up until that time, I, I didn't think of myself as human. I didn't really have what you'd describe as body dysmorphia. It was, and it wasn't gender confusion. It was more like a confusion of being. Like, I didn't feel like a man, I didn't feel like a woman, I just felt like this thing. I felt like this ugly, distorted-looking thing. And so when I saw these pictures of myself looking like a female human being, it made me cry. And uh, while I was kind of having this moment, <laughs> he said, um, so my girlfriend does photography too, and she's looking for a model. Are you interested? And since I was having, like, you know, high on this moment of realizing that I was a person, I said, sure. Sounds great. They said, have you ever met her before? And I said, I don't think so. And I was right. Because if I had ever met Gina before, I would have remembered. She was 29 and had long, light brown hair and this sunshiny smile. And she wore long skirts and snakeskin cowboy boots every day. I don't know if this was a phase or whatever, but it was one phase. And um, whereas I could talk to Dale and ask him questions about like art and photography and stuff like that and have like a really good conversation, I couldn't talk to her. So I just asked her a bunch of questions about herself so I wouldn't have to talk. And I didn't understand that this was attraction. I just thought she was really cool and I was kind of intimidated. And so the first shoot that we did, she had to tell me to relax my space like 50 fucking thousand times. And there was this one moment where I remember I was, um, I was stretched out on her bed, my arms in front of me, and my face was tilted towards the camera, which was just like looking directly into her eyes. And she said, relax your face. And I took a deep breath, like I've gone through Dale, and she said, now you just look pissed. <laughs> And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, it's okay. Do you have a lot on your mind? <laughs> I didn't have anything on my mind. I had nothing but pure terror when she put the camera down, walked across the room, told me to roll over on my back, sat next to me on the bed, and rubbed my temple and asked me if I was okay. <laughs> and I just want you to know that if you ever want to scare the living shit out of a repressed, shy, closeted, virgin, naked person. This is a fabulous virgin. I was scared to death. So I sat up straight and I said, no, I'm fine. I'm really fine. She said, do you want to take a break? And I said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. So um, we went to her kitchen, I got dressed, and um, you know, we, 
blueberries and drank tea and stuff. And while she was talking, I thought, dude, you have got to pull it together. This is a really cool person, and you're being like kind of a dork. And um, I ended up doing three shoots with her, actually. And uh, I was able to kind of calm down. And the third shoot that we did, she, um, she had this cool idea of getting up in like 50s lingerie, like old fashioned kind of lingerie. And so there's this one picture <laughs> that I don't know what's happened to it, I'm a little scared. Um, there was this one picture where I was in like uh, a garter belt and stockings, and you couldn't really see my face because my face was turned and my bangs were kind of hanging down to my nose. You could just see my mouth, and I was topless, so it really pops out at me with my boobs. And she handed it to me, and she said, this one came out great. I thought you'd like to have it. I didn't really know what to do with the picture of my own breasts, <laughs> but I appreciated it. I thought it was nice. So um, that night, uh, my friend Ricardo and a bunch of other friends, we went to this indie movie theater uh, called Movie Pictures. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. It was really cool. And um, the kind of place where you could like buy beer and sit on an old couch and watch a movie. It was awesome. And we were walking down the hallway and on the walls were these portraits by local artists. And Ricardo runs up to me and he said, um, dude, Gina's pictures are up. You might be in one. And it hit me then what I had done. Because I had not just like gotten undressed for Gina or Dale or myself. I did it for everyone to see. Anyone who wanted to see it. And, um, and I was especially worried about that one picture uh, because she liked it a lot. And um, I really didn't want my friends to see that. So I kind of looked around at the portraits and luckily I wasn't up there. Um, but I never, uh, I didn't do another shoot with her. And, um, and I know that those pictures were put up, I didn't see them. Um, but what changed from that experience is that I never again thought of myself as a thing, ever. And uh, now I just have regular little body dysmorphia, just like everybody else. But when um, I go to take a picture, and I'm standing in a group, or I'm taking a selfie or whatever, and I get really self-conscious about my flaws, which have increased in the last 20 years since I did those pictures become a lot more human. Um, I remember that shoot. And I relax. And I take a deep breath. And I remember that I am beautifully human. Thanks. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to our first episode. I'd like to give a special shout-out of thanks to our sponsor. Do you hate it when that time of the month comes around and you are in that aisle of the store and all the tampon boxes are all flowery and frilly and shit? Well, have we got the product for you. From the inventors of Softball comes Toolbox Tampons, packaged in a red toolbox convenient for all Subarus, Jeeps, and bicycles, found in that aisle of your favorite store. All right, thank you, Toolbox Tampons. Uh, we'd also like to thank our special guest, Genevieve Reams, for sharing her world with you. Extra special thanks goes out to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. And thank you, of course, to all our friends and supporters. Uh, if you want to catch Greetings from Queer Mountain live, uh, you can check it out in New Orleans every second Friday of the month at 7.30, in Austin every last Wednesday of the month at 9 p.m. at Cheer Up Charlie's, and in New York, it'll be launching uh, January 24th at Housing Works Bookstore. Thank y'all. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.